All right. Well, church family, you guys can go ahead and take a seat if you're not already sitting. Uh, we are just want to welcome you guys online and here at the church. I know there's a lot of people watching online tonight. They've just kind of reached out to me. So just welcome everyone. I'm glad you guys could tune in for our monthly signs of the times discussion. Um, again, it's been like couple months since we've done the last one we were doing we try to do this the last thursday of every month um but because of like the conflict of thanksgiving and then christmas and then we had our week of prayer and fasting last month we took uh three months off but we're picking up again tonight um kind of where we left off um in just a reminder why we're doing this is because jesus told us to uh in matthew 24 he tells us um, a bunch of things that would kind of happen leading up to his return. And whereas we don't know the exact time that the Lord will return, we do know the season. Or he said you'd recognize the season by the signs, uh, by what the Bible tells us would happen as we get nearer to his return. And he tells us to be watchful. We're to like, keep a lookout for these things. And uh, oh, my, my, our fourth speaker just got here, so it's all right. It's not your turn yet, Jason, but you can come up here on stage when you're ready. Um, so anyways, I'll introduce these guys in a second, but we're to be watchful. And so, um, that's kind of what our intent is in this, looking at the Bible and what it says about prophecy, because quite a big section of it is prophecies, uh, a lot that has already happened, but then a lot that still is to come to pass and understand from a biblical standpoint, what it tells us, and then kind of discuss some of the things we see happening in the world that are kind of paving the way for these biblical prophecies to happen in the in the future. And uh, so that's what we're going to, that's the goal tonight. If you guys remember, we were in Daniel 2. Um, last time we, we gathered together, Daniel being a book full of prophecy, and we're doing a survey through that book. Um, I'll talk, I'll do a recap in, in a second um, about what we talked about last time. But uh, coming out of that, we are focusing on the topic tonight of globalization or basically the idea uh, of this push to move to a unified world system, like a unified world government, a unified world economic system, a unified world religious system, um, you name it, but just, just this coming together and, 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 and being like one world system instead of several. I guess the opposite of globalization would be what we call nationalization and that's what most of us have grown up in um that's kind of the world today you have individual nations um but there the bible tells us that as we get near the end there's going to be this uh one world system like the world's never seen before truly like a one world empire that's led by the satanically influenced and empowered individual called the antichrist so that's what we see the world moving towards um, so let me go ahead and introduce uh, the people that are up here and then I'll do a recap of Daniel 2 and kind of just give a, a biblical outline on, on, on the idea of globalization. So uh, right here next to me, we have one of our home church leaders, my brother-in-law, Jason Nab. I knew he'd be late, so it's, it's all right. <laughs> he didn't miss nothing. And then um, uh, next to him, we've got our lead deacon, uh, Josh Rashane. And then we have our youth pastor, one of our elders, uh, Marcus Handy. 
And the reason I chose these guys is uh, I, we have like an offline chat where I know these guys are guys that are watchful, as Jesus says. They're constantly kind of we're sending articles back and forth to each other, just kind of watching the things happen in this world that, you know, and talking about how like these things might relate to, you know, the prophecies that we know are still going to happen in the future. So we're just being watchful together. Um, so uh, these are the guys that I thought would be good to kind of talk about these current world events that we see happening today. So just to give you a reminder of Daniel 2, what we talked about last time, because we always want to look at biblical prophecy from a scriptural foundation. All right. That's important. We otherwise, the way I like to compare it is if you're just kind of looking at the things happening and you don't have the biblical foundation to understand what is going to happen, it's kind of like watching the last five minutes of a movie. It's like like you got all the cool cliffhanger stuff, everything's coming together, and you're just like wondering, what the heck is going on? Because you don't know any of the plot points or anything like that. So, I mean, we've got to have that biblical foundation. And what I've found, sadly, is that there's a lot of churches that just don't teach this stuff. So you have a lot of people that don't understand these things that God has clearly put in his word for us to understand. So that's what we want to work from. So in Daniel 2, if you remember... Um, Daniel, a book, like I said, that contains a lot of prophecy in it, a lot of that prophecy having already occurred, and then some that's still to happen. Um, it's referred to um, by some as the backbone of Bible prophecy because it is a book that is very helpful in helping you understand other sections of Scripture that talk about uh, prophetic events. Um, and we started our study in Daniel 2, and I taught through that whole chapter. If you did not, if you were not here for that, I'm going to encourage you to get up and leave right now and go watch. No, actually, no. But it, it, it's on our archives, on our website. You can listen to it. It's on the YouTube page if you want to watch it. Definitely encourage you after this, if you have not done that, at some point this week, go back and look at that so you understand uh, the biblical foundation of what we're talking about tonight because it'll be very helpful for you. Um, but in it, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon um, at this time, the nation of Israel is in exile. There, many of the people have been brought to live in Babylon. And he has a dream. They're kind of the, the world empire at the time, Babylon. And he has this dream, and it really troubles him. And so he brings his so-called wise men, his like sorcerers, kind of the people that are in his court that are educated people. And he says, you guys need to tell me what my dream was, because he didn't want them to lie to him, because... If he just told them the dream, they could interpret to say whatever he meant. So he says, I want you guys to tell me what the dream was I had and then tell me what it means. And he goes a step further and he basically says, put some pressure on him saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you because basically you're worthless. What am I paying for you for? And so he kind of leaves it at that. And Daniel, who uh, was a Jew that had been exiled and some of his companions, also Jews, um, they had been picked. They were people that lived in the king's court or they were some of his wise men, if you will, educated guys. And Daniel gets wind of this and he's one of these guys, him and his friends, that could potentially die. And so he requests an audience with the king and then he gets his friends and he says, man, we need to seek the Lord for him to give me this understanding of what this dream is and, and what it means. And so he does that. God answers his prayer. He shows them. And um, basically, he goes to the king, and he makes it clear that, hey, this vision, um, God told me what it was. The one and only true God told me what it was so I could tell you and you could know. And basically, what the dream was was this big, giant, like, awe-inspiring image of a person, like like a statue. 
and it was had different its body was made out of different materials like starting from the head to the toes it was like gold silver bronze iron and then clay mixed with iron and then as he's looking at the statue this huge stone hits it at its feet and just pulverizes it into dust okay and then daniel proceeds to tell him what the lord showed him and that was that the statue uh and its different materials represented basically four kingdoms one of them uh the head of gold basically being the kingdom of babylon the kingdom the nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that that's the first kingdom and then three other kingdoms which at that point had not yet come on the face of the earth but since that time have come just as the bible accurately predicted long before they ever did come the first being the Mede and the persian empire that came after the babylonians basically conquered them and then after that empire the greek empire that conquered the Mede and persian empire and then the roman empire which conquered the greeks and historically um ended long ago but has since started to be resurrected as in 1950 shortly after israel became a nation again in 1948 there were six european nations that basically were kind of based out of what formerly was the roman empire and they came together to form what's called the treaty of rome or the european economic community treaty this treaty still being one of the two most important treaties that what's known today as the european union is guide is is guided by basically it's under those treaties and the beginnings of the revived roman empire uh started and ultimately what we see in daniel in revelation is it will culminate with a a true world empire empire, like the world's never seen before like a, a that's based um uh, with 10 nations um, that are uh, ran by or led by this figure called the Antichrist. And even as powerful as this world empire is going to be, it's going to be nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus, our rock, Jesus, that stone that's going to come and when uh, and demolish and, and destroy the Antichrist and, and his empire when he comes and he establishes his rule and reign on this earth, which we all it seems appropriate we're talking about this stuff today because i think we all woke up with a somber attitude seeing the war that's breaking out in europe right now but all that to say is that's one of the many things that jesus said rumor wars and rumors of wars that would happen at a more frequent pace the closer we got to his return and we're seeing those things happen all right so so that's where we left off that's what's going to lead us into our conversation tonight about this 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 principle of globalism this world coming together um let me just give you some biblical history on this because like everything else in this world globalism is not some new idea okay this is something that we see uh people gravitate towards just after the flood at the very beginning of the bible all right so i'm going to go back to genesis 11 and i'm going to kind of teach briefly through verses one through nine because this is the first instance of globalism, of this com- wanting to come together that we see. It says in uh, verse eleven, Genesis or verse one in Genesis eleven, at one time all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. Um, so this is the very beginning of history after the flood. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia, settled there. This would be where Babylon existed, you know, historically. And they began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. 
And in this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. So what's interesting about this is that that word that's used there for tar, some of your translations probably say pitch. It's the same thing that was used to build the ark, basically to waterproof it so it would float. So some commentators speculate, they think that maybe what man was trying to do here, even though God said he wasn't going to flood the earth again, they're like, oh, well, we'll make sure that he doesn't like flood us again. We'll protect ourselves. You know, it was in a sense an act against God to build this tower that they're building. And it says in verse four, then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves, not for God, but for their glory, for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. So the thought of what they're building here is what was called as a, a ziggurat. It was a, a common tower where it would kind of go in a spiral shape, wider at the base, get narrower as it's going up. And what they often use those for, when it's saying they wanted to build it to the sky, some of your translations probably say to the heavens, they weren't literally probably trying to reach God, but they would use these for the purpose of astronomy, like to get closer to the sky, to have a better view of the sky so that they could see the heavens. And astrology was in a sense a religion, like they'd use it to forecast the future, to, you know, like make prophecies and and, and, and like get into the supernatural world and stuff like that. So in a sense, what they're doing in doing this is it's, it's, it's an example of probably the world's first example that we see in scripture, at least of organized religion, people's attempt to be like God or to get to God. All right. And it goes on to say, this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the earth. Now, if you know your Bibles, that is a direct rebellious response to God because at Genesis 9, 1, immediately after the flood, what did he tell Noah and his family? He said, multiply, be fruitful, go out into all ends of the earth, like spread out. And so what they're saying is, no, no, we don't want to do that. We want to stay together. And it says in verse 5, but the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower and the people, uh, the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united. And they all speak the same language. And this, after this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. So, you know, at first glance, you might read that and go like, well, what's so bad about that? You know, unity, peace, that's what we, we want. Well, here's the problem, all right? If man, if people were inherently good in their nature, that wouldn't be an issue. But the problem is we are not inherently good. We are inherently bad. We make bad decisions. We make bad choices. And so when we're together, the, the, the consequences become more severe when you are together and uh, basically the choice of one person can affect you as a whole instead of infecting you individually. We've all seen that in our life where our bad choices affect other people. So society as a whole being together, God understood in his mercy, this is not a good thing because they will destroy themselves shortly. And so in his mercy as an act of grace, he scatters people. Basically, it says in verse five uh, or sorry, verse seven, come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. And in that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. So again, God came down in his mercy and to control their fallen nature to in a sense like in a sense of like damage control, like I'm going to spread them out. And, and, and this will keep them from basically destroying themselves. And so 
Um, and it, what's interesting too is that here we see the Lord come down to undo this unified world system, this unified government. And it's exactly what we're going to see at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back. He's going to come back to undo us as we come back together and are on the verge of destroying ourselves. And it says in verse 9, that is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. So at this time, this was the one and only true world empire. There's been lots of people that have tried to take over the world since then, but have been unsuccessful. But this was a true one world empire. And until the last, the coming world empire led by the Antichrist comes, uh, it, it'll be the only one, but that'll be the next one. Okay. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about the, some of the things that we see going on in this world that are kind of setting the stage for this one world system to kind of form, all right? So let me go ahead and pray first, and then we will let some of these guys uh, talk about uh, the things that they kind of, uh, headlines and stuff, things that are going on in the world. So let me go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, we just are thankful for your word. Uh, we know that it's all truth, and we're thankful that you've given us uh, uh, a peek, if you will, into the future um, because when we see things happening like the war we're seeing happening today, the, a lot of the things we've seen happen over the last couple of years, they can have a tendency to cause fear and discouragement is, is we just, um, we see evil running rampant. We see, uh, things that are uncomfortable, uh, for us, uh, and, and hurtful to other people. Um, you would just, we see evil is what we see. And it's hard to watch, Lord. But when we know your word, when we know the things that you say that are going to happen, it helps us understand that you're not somehow forgetting us. You're not losing control of this world and the people in it, that everything is uh, going according to your perfect and good plan. And we know for your people, for those that have placed their faith in you, things end well for us. And we know that we have one mission to keep our focus on until you come back to get us or we go to be with you. And that mission never changes. So as we see things going according to plan, our mission is to stay the same too, according to the plan you've given us. And that is to take as many people as we can with us, Lord, as we share your glorious good news uh, of your work on the cross and of, of the forgiveness that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ of our sins and the restoration that comes as a result of that with God um, so that we can be with you for eternity in, uh, in your kingdom where we don't have to uh, see the consequences of sin around us, Lord. So we're thankful that you've given us these truths uh, to bring um, peace to us in, in the middle of kind of the chaos going around, uh, around us and, and really to give us a hope into the future, not into this world that's passing away, but into the future kingdom to come when we're with you, Lord. So as, as we're here today, we also want to just lift up uh, the people in the Ukraine, Lord. Um, you know, it is horrifying to watch those videos. And, and it's just a, a, a sobering reminder of how horrible war is and, and the destruction it brings to people in their lives. And so, Lord, we just ask 
for um, your intervention. We, we ask for divine intervention in the whole thing there. Would you stop that war? Uh, would you intervene? Would you basically protect the innocent lives over there, Lord, um, from the, the just being harmed by those that would have evil motives, Lord? Um, we pray especially for your people that know you um, because we know even in the worst of circumstances, you can use them for your good. We, you can use them to reveal yourself to people that need you and, and, and can find peace and joy even in the worst of situations. And so, Lord, we pray that this could be used to bring many into a saving knowledge of you, that you'd anoint your people to be witnesses, that you would provide for them to provide for those in need, to help those that are being affected um, with that that um, goal of being able to share you with them so they could get saved and have the same hope that we do, Lord. And ultimately, Lord, we ask that you would come back soon. Um, Maranatha, we want we want you to come back, Lord. We, we want you to um, basically culminate, like put in effect everything that you've said that's going to happen um, so that your return can be soon and we can live with you in your kingdom here on this earth, Lord. So... Um, Lord, we ask that you be with us as we share about these things, Lord. May we accurately share what your word has to say. May we uh, convey the same hope and the same encouragement that you intend your word to give us, especially regarding prophecy, um, and, 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 and not fear, Lord. We know we're not to be fearful of these things. So be with us. May we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So. It was more than 15 minutes, guys. Sorry. <laughs> I give everyone a goal of 15 minutes, but not one of us is going to meet it. I can guarantee it. So we're going to go ahead and start with uh, Jason here. Um, I'm going to let him go ahead and share. I kind of gave these guys just open-ended, like, this is what we're talking about. There's tons of stuff we could talk about relating to globalism, but talk about what you think, like, is, is a good subject. So go ahead, Jason. And there's your mic. All right. Thanks, Chris. What I like about God's word is it's always relevant. And something that we're doing in our family, and we've been doing it for the last several years, is just reading through the Bible in a year. And I just wrapped up reading First uh, Thessalonians 5 and when Chris invited me to join this. And so I thought, well, before I get started, I need to share what I just read in First Thessalonians 5. And the reason I am is... A lot of people, when they think about Bible prophecy, they're like, well, why do you care about that? You know, we don't really know when the Lord's going to return. Um, and it's scary. You know, there's lots of things, especially about a one-world government, it's very scary. We don't know how it's going to form. Is there going to be some kind of huge economic crash that's going to happen, and we're going to have to go through this before, you know, the Lord returns and, and gets us? You know, we, we don't know, and so there's lots of uncertainty. But the Bible's very clear that, and I'm going to just start reading so you know what it's clear about here. So in First Thessalonians 5, 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. We're not going to be surprised when this day comes. For you are all children of light 
children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation... For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. So we need to encourage each other when we see these things happen. And just like in Luke talks about when you see these things coming, we know the Lord is near. So our redemption is near. He's coming to get us. So we should be excited and encourage each other. Amen. All right, let's talk about... The one world government. But before we get started, you know, I believe everything that we're discussing here, these are potential precursors to the one world government, right? You know, these are our opinions. This is just looking at the news. But one thing that I really tried to do is I didn't want to put a square peg in a round hole. And, and you see a lot of people do it. There's even some pastors that do it. There's lots of people on the internet. You know, they're trying to connect these dots and they go really out in left field. But I really wanted to just look at what the facts are that we see. And so one of the things I started looking at were certain government white papers or government research papers that the government puts out. And the reason they put these papers out is for transparency. But the funny thing about it is almost nobody ever reads them. So anyway, um, except me. Um, but interestingly, you know, the Bible doesn't use the word one world government or even a one world currency in referring to end times. But the Bible does provide ample evidence that both will exist under the rule of the Antichrist. Now, you can read more about this in Revelations 13.1 for those taking notes or um, where it talks about the beast. And I know Chris spoke about just briefly the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns. And that's referencing Daniel 7.16 through 24. And then you have Daniel 2.41 through 42, which talks about the final world government consisting of these ten entities that are represented by the ten toes of the statue. Now, the ten toes is also, the, the number ten has some significance for meaning um, like all the world. And I think it probably because it's ten toes, it's all the toes. Well, if that would be all the planet is together here. So regarding these ten entities or kingdoms, you can find maps online, even today, that break down the world into ten geographic regions. Uh, the United Nations even has one showing um, the world in 10 regional groupings. And an interesting one I saw was 10 regions based on the predominant religion. So the world was break, broken down in 10 regions based on the predominant religion religion of those areas. So that, those are some interesting things that I, I saw online. Um, I, I don't know if that's how things are going to shake out or not, but it's, it's interesting. Um, something else that's interesting is apparently these 10 world leaders, when they arise during the final Gentile kingdom, um, they, that's before the Antichrist appears and who's going to subdue them in the three kings after he gains power. So, you know, it's possible. Some theologians think it's possible we could see the elements of these things start to come together before the Lord returns. And, and that could be scary to some people. Um, but we have nothing to fear because we've got a Lord who's going to keep us safe and take us from this. So. Um, as for the one world system, I believe, you know, we're not going to see it anyway because the Bible's super clear on how it comes about. So when the whole world unites and the Antichrist in power, we're going to be gone, right? Revelation 6-2, um, talks about when the rider is on a pale horse with a bow. Most likely that's the Antichrist and he's given a crown. 
And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, the word used for that crown that he's given is a Stephanos. Now, it's not the kind that, you know, we're going to typically think of like a golden crown with the jewels in it or something. But a Stephanos, it's, it's a wreath crown. It's more uh, specifically, it's a laurel wreath that is awarded to winning athletes and it's placed on their head. So he's going to come in, he's as a conqueror, and it's going to be handed handed to him. Now, this is um, indicative of how he comes to power. Um, uh, I was looking at some information that John MacArthur had said recently, and I like how he sums this up. Is It was given to him. Antichrist becomes king. He's elected by the world's inhabitants regardless of the cost and will conquer the entire earth in a bloodless coup. So he conquers everything, without, uh, I'm assuming, without a shot fired. So what is a one-world government, and do we actually see the elements of that today? Well, according to Wikipedia, the world government or global government, and sometimes called one-worldism or cosmocracy, these are the concepts of a single political authority for all humanity. Now, it generally entails some form of government through a single state or polity with jurisdiction over the entire world. Um, This can come about through peaceful or voluntary supranational union, um, which is what we see as described in the Bible when the Antichrist comes to power. Now, the idea of a one-world government, you know, is nothing new. Chris just spoke about that in the Tower of Babel. And all throughout history, you know, we've seen countries um, or conquerors try to gain more and more territories, conquer more land. Um, I'd say probably the most successful that we've ever seen, not in our lifetime, way before, but would probably be the Roman Empire. But no one ruler ever really ruled the entire world. And quoting from Wikipedia, again, the inception of the United Nations in the mid-20th century remains the closest approximation to a world government, as is by far the largest and most powerful international institution. Now, nevertheless, beyond the Security Council, which can issue mandatory resolutions backed by member states, the UN is limited to mostly an advisory role. But nevertheless, the organization is still commonly viewed as either a model or a preliminary step towards a proper global government. So the whole point of the UN is, you know, we want to give all the governments say to have peace. But it's evolved now uh, much more beyond that. So what are governments doing today to implement a one-world government? Well, there's lots of different policies that governments implement, and we're not going to look at these policies because it's not very fun, and you can't really decipher what a policy means. You know, we could make some conclusions, but what we're going to look at is three things. Uh, one I already mentioned, which is these papers that governments put out, research papers. Other ones are different global summits that they participate in. And then the, other, the last is various organizations that the government participates in as well, or government leaders, thought leaders, think take think take think tank people, and and people of that nature. Um, First, teeing off with government reports, and this is when everyone's probably going to go to sleep, and that's okay. So, which that's just basically, it's a document that's been written by the the government. Um, Usually it's some kind of policy decisions they're trying to push through, or maybe it's national security. The ones we're going to be referencing is from the the, uh, National um, Intelligence Council. Um, and this report is called the Global Trends Report. It's been published every four years since 1997 by the National Intelligence Council. And the Global Trends assess the key trends and uncertainties that will shape the strategic environment for the United States during the next two decades. Now, in late 2008, Global Trends 2025 
So when they write these, they, they're writing them about the future, what they anticipate, you know, challenges that we're going to have to overcome. So this one was written 20, 2008, uh, referencing the year 2025, which is just a few years away from now. So the title that was A Transformed World, it was published and noted that momentous change was ahead with the gap between increasing disorder and weakening governance structures widening. And then in 2010, they updated that report, um, and they partnered this time with the European Union Institute for Security Studies, and they released the Global Governance 2025 report uh, at a critical juncture is the title of that report. And then the latest one um, that just came out recently, it's Global Trends 2040, and it's titled A More Contested World, which, and this one's the longest. It's over 140 pages long. Now, it's interesting the report fell in the year 2040 because in the 70s, uh, if anyone's seen the news recently, um, MIT predicted uh, society is going to collapse by the year 2040. And the studies, and they have a history record, you know, they can go back from the 70s and see how things have progressed. They're saying that we're on track with what they've predicted. So that's not <laughs> making me feel very good. So, and that, you can read more about that. There's an article about that, and the Hill is dated back in uh, July 2021. But we're not going to go there tonight. But tonight we're going to go look at the Global Governance 2025 report. And remember, that was written back in 2010. Uh, this report's unique because it's the first time the NIC has jointly developed and produced an unclassified report with the non-U.S. bodies. So the EU participated in putting this document together. And this is a U.S. research paper for the U.S. government. But Brazil, China, India, Japan, Russia, South America, and, and some Gulf states participated in this, which was interesting because they all got to add their own perspectives to it, to some of these world challenges that we're anticipating in the future. Um, so I'd say the big takeaways from that document um, is the U.S. operating in a multipolar world. And what that means is, um, you know, for a long time, the U.S. was a sole superpower. And right now, we see the rise of China. We see Russia just recently flexing its muscles. People are jockeying for this, this power void that's been left as the United States is decreasing. So this is not just causing problems for the United States. It's causing problems for the whole world. So they're looking for solutions to how can we get along when this when this is happening. Uh, another thing that I thought was really interesting is the interdependence of nations and interconnectedness. And what I've learned is a lot of these words are really just globalist words about just being connected. They have all these different flavors of being connected. And um, what's really interesting about that is is the interconnectedness. Now, this is so much larger than just nations. There's these NGOs, which are non-governmental organizations, um, there, which could be a religious organization. It could be um, some kind of um, like a think tank, tank type type of organizations. They're multinational companies that are really large. Um, I'm sure you could think of many of them. I mean, even some of the fast food, I think like KFC has like 30,000 locations. I'd be considered a multinational global company. Um, we have companies like Apple that that's global. So what's interesting that is these companies are so large and these organizations are so large, it's making it very, very difficult for governments to to conduct policy or just engage with the interest or their own national interest. And as an example, just to really share the magnitude of how large this can be. We're going to just reference this little company you've probably heard of called Apple. You know, they make computers and iPhones, things like that. I don't know if you've heard of them. But um, just a few years ago, Apple negotiated a deal with China um, to enter their market. Well, they were already in their market, but there's a lot of red tape that was making it difficult for them. So 
Um, they paid Chinese officials $275 billion to be able to continue doing business in China. And that was just for five years of doing business there. Now, $275 billion would rank with the top 40 richest nations on the planet in terms of GDP. So we're talking a lot of money. But in addition to that, and I'm referencing an article from The, the Guardian dated uh, December of 2021, is some of Apple's investments in China would go towards you know building new stores, uh, research and development centers, renewable energy, things of like that. But what was really interesting about this is they included a pledge to help Chinese manufacturers develop the most advanced manufacturing technologies and support the training of high-quality Chinese talents. And as a part of the agreement, Apple pr- promised to use more components from Chinese suppliers. So they're going to buy more things from China. So they're going to be more connected to China. I mean, this makes it really difficult if you're the United States and you want to try to promote jobs in our own country. So, so much for the American worker when something like that's going on. And you can even just think just several years ago when Trump was in office and the trade war between China, you notice who was absent out of all that was it didn't affect Apple. And you can imagine why, because there's a lot of pressure going on in the United States government from Apple. There's a lot of pressure from China because Apple paid China $275 billion to do business with them. And this information also just came out really end of last year because Apple really kept this secret. And Apple's not the only company doing this. There's other international companies, you know, most likely some of the automotive companies that you're very well familiar with. There's other technology companies. So we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars um, that's abroad. So it's it's almost impossible for us to have a trade war like Trump was trying to, even though you might have been supportive of it, there's just so much pressure even against a huge superpower as the United States because it's we're just so interconnected now with these other countries. So it makes it very, very difficult. So they're trying to find solutions. How do we – what you're seeing is we're so interconnected. We're really just one big global unit now. It's, we're not these individual countries. Um, so one of the other things that was in this research paper, and this is how they try to figure things out, is the game theory scenarios. And they had four different scenarios, and I'm not going to talk about the first two scenarios because the first two were really based on the, the status quo. What if things just stay the same? And we can handle problems they figured out if things stay the same. We just come up with ad hoc solutions to solve them. But the main thing about that is that's not sustainable. That's what they determined. So the third scenario they came up with was there's severe threats to the international system, possibly a looming environmental disaster or or a conflict that risks spreading that prompts greater cooperation on solving global problems. Significant reform of the international system becomes possible, although less likely than the first two scenarios. That's the standard, uh, the status quo ones. Um, in the immediate future. Now, it's interesting. They, they thought this would be less likely because I think we're kind of seeing this happening right now with, with Russia. We're seeing this, you know, um, this, this crisis that's arising. Now, what they said about it, it kind of got my flags up here, is that such a scenario might prove the best outcome over the longer term, building a resilient international system that would step up the level of overall cooperation on any array of problems. So they, they actually like it when there's problems because it allows them to push these globalist policies through a lot easier. There's going to be a lot less restrictions as the, the general populace is going to want a solution to whatever that problem is. Um, I'm going to just skip along, just skip through this because we're getting to uh, running out of time is that um, something that came out of this policy is when they were role playing this 
everything was hosted on World Economic Forum servers. So they, World Economic Forum is this big organization, and it was all hosted on their blog. And various um, heads of states and people got to participate, leaving their opinions, and it was all done anonymously, so that way nobody would have fear of, you know, of retribution or anything of that nature. But I thought that was really interesting. And one of the obstacles that they're finding right now um, to implementing, and this is from a U.S. paper for implementing globalist ambitions, is, and this is actually from one of the Russian think tank participants, is that Western approach to global governance with the United States and the West as a center and creator of laws and rules, it diminishes the readiness of others to cooperate. So others want to cooperate, but the United States is in a way. They don't necessarily like the United States. And it's interesting, you see a lot of effort of the United States diminishing on a global scene. You know, is it to push along these agendas? I don't know, but it looks like it. All right, and to speed through, we're going to just touch lightly on some of these global summits. Um, three big ones come to mind. That's the Bilderbergs, um, there's Davos, um, and then there's the World Government Summit. Um, and, and these summits, we have politicians that go to them, heads of states. We have um, CEOs from the largest companies go to these types of organizations. And um, so one of them is the World Government Summit. This one takes place in Dubai every year. The big topic this year is going to be the world beyond the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, pay attention to that term. You're going to hear a lot more of it. Uh, but the fourth industrial revolution, it's a fusion of advances in artificial intelligence or AI, uh, robotics, the Internet of Things, genetic engineering, quantum computing, and much more. And then it even gets a little weird. There's even, I almost say, some kind of spiritual aspects of it. It's, it's definitely uh, something to keep your eyes on. Um, the other one is uh, Davos. Uh, Davos is an interesting one. This is put on by the World Economic Forum, which you just heard they were involved with this U.S. research paper. And here they are. They they put on the Davos meetings. Um, something about Davos is, and this was written about people who go to them, just so you get an idea of the type of people that's that goes to them. And, and, and these are people you read about in the paper. Some of them are personalities you see on TV, maybe on Fox. They're um, they are senators. Um, they're prime ministers of other countries, but I, w- I want to read this to you. This is from um, uh, a gentleman. He's a political scientist named Samuel Huntington, and he said, The formation of a detached elite, also known as a Davos man, refers to a global group whose members view themselves as completely international. The term refers to people who have little need for a national loyalty view national boundaries as obstacles that thankfully are vanishing and see national governments as residues from the past whose only useful function is to facilitate the elite's global operations. So these are people that are running American companies. These are people that we've elected to office. These are people all around. They all have this same global view. And there's this elite out there known as the Davos man. And, and they don't like borders. They don't, they're not loyal to our, to our country or doesn't matter whatever country they're from. They're not loyal to those countries. All right. I'm going to just jump into the last one, which is organizations. There's there's many organizations different government leaders are involved with. Um, you've all heard of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There's a Tony Blair Institute. And then the big one that continuously came up as I did research on this is the World Economic Forum. And... Um, 
So what's interesting about the World Economic Forum is, you know, they promote globalism, right? We've kind of been kind of getting the message here as we talk about a one-world government. Um, and this is basically one of their objectives, is the forum suggests that a globalized world is best managed by a self-selected coalition of multinational corporations, governments, and civil society organizations, which it expresses through initiatives like the Great Reset and the Global Redesign. It sees periods of global instability, such as the financial crisis of 07 and 08 and the COVID-19 pandemic, as windows of opportunity to intensify its programmatic efforts. Now, if we rewind here, we go back to this government research paper, the United States even saw opportunities during crisis. You know, this also brings to mind, we all learned during the Obama administration, things like the Saul Alinsky's book, right? Don't let a crisis go to race. This is when they could implement these policies with the less amount of friction. So you see there's this mindset that's out there. They're, they're looking for problems so they could implement these global solutions. At least that's what they think. Um, last, um, I'm going to summarize this really quickly here is um, with the World Economic Forum, they support um, these like sub subgroups within their organization. And one that's really, really popular that you're going to be interested in is the Young Global Leaders. Now, every year the World Economic Forum looks at for anywhere between, I don't know, up, well, last year I think they found 190 people under the age of 40 from 65 different countries. Um, these are people that share globalist ambitions. They're successful. They have to have some kind of high level in, in, in a company and and they nominate them and they, they, they bring them in. So they range from people from all levels of society. You got editors at major news organizations, managing directors at like hedge hunt hedge funds, financial institutions and and, and so on. Um, oh yeah, so young global leaders they participate in the annual meetings of the new champions is what it's called. It was established in two thousand seven and it's known informally as the Summer Davos, alongside the global growth companies and other delegations. So these are some of the things that they get to participate in. Now let's look at a few names of some of these people, and, and I guarantee you've heard of some of them. Well, if we look at Canada and what's going on in Canada right now, Justin Trudeau, he's their prime minister. He's one of the young global leaders. Uh, interesting enough, their deputy prime minister is one as well. Um, and there's at least six others that are in various branches of power. They have people in their Supreme Court that have this. So they all have this globalist mindset, you know. They're part of the World Economic Forum, and they're in power in Canada. Um, we have other heads of states, Emmanuel Macron. He's the president of France. Uh, the prime minister of New Zealand is one. Uh, prime minister of Belgium. Prime minister of Finland. And supposedly Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, and Angela Merkel, she's the chancellor of Germany, um, are also part of it. Now, that was interesting because they're, um, they're too old to become, uh, young global leaders, but they're most likely honorary. They, um, Klaus Schwab, who runs the World Economic Forum, has made honorary members. But what's interesting, just a, a week or two ago, we have Macron, who's a young global leader, just over there talking to Putin, trying to make peace. You know, so these people all have the same mindset. You know, so there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that we'll ever be privy of or whatever's going to be reported on the news. Uh, some tech companies, you got the CEO of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, um, the co-founders of Google and Alphabet, Sergey Brin and Larry Page. No surprise here, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Meta. Uh, these are all members of, of um, this organization. And there's about 1,400 of them uh, globally. 
But even larger, well, actually, I'm going to have to stretch my time because this gets a little bit more interesting here. So I, I, there's about 1,400 of them, and there's a lot of them that their names we don't even know. So I just started picking random ones, and I started Googling who they are. And some of them are now parts of these, or they're running these big hedge funds, right? They invest in companies. A lot of them are private companies they're investing in. But what's interesting is they only have a one-page website, and they're part of this big, supposedly this organization, and they only have a one-page website. You know, most companies have a lot more than that. Um, when you look at LinkedIn profiles, it seems like after they became a um, young global leader, their careers really rose quickly. Um, those, those are some of the things I started noticing. Um, but and, and some of them, there just wasn't a whole lot of information about them. Uh, this one particular person I came across, um, this one lady, and I have all their names here. I'm just not going to stay them online or anything. I'll probably get banned from YouTube or something. But um, this one lady... Um, you know, because they have their pictures next to them, and I don't know why this crossed my mind, but I'm like, she kind of looks like a Barbie doll. I know that's going to just sound super funny, but let me tell you the story. She did work with NASA. She's a researcher. She's got like this phenomenal resume. And then, as I when I Google her, there's lots of pictures. She's got like NASA swag on. She's out in like in the desert in some kind of crazy astronaut uniform. You know, supposedly doing research. Um, she's in a laboratory doing stuff for NASA. And But I kept thinking that she looks like a Barbie doll. And then sure enough, as I did a little more digging, Mattel actually made a Barbie doll of her as a successful like woman. Well, I did some more digging. I actually didn't have to do a whole lot more. It turned out all that information about her was all fabricated. It wasn't even real. It was all just set up. So I don't... I'm not implying anything per se, like, like all the other ones. You know, some of these, are they just... You know, are they like just puppets or something? It's just interesting. Like these are just random ones I picked picked out, and they just got some real interesting backgrounds or, or lack of backgrounds. But they're all nominated for that. Um, something else here is you can see how the young global leaders could be potentially used, and I'm not talking about they're being used. They're, they they believe they have this global mindset, and something that recently came about is when I was talking about the fourth industrial um, revolution, and this was spoken about by Klaus Schwab. I think he's the one that really kind of promoted this idea. Um, he used the phrase fourth industrial revolution in a 2015 article published by Foreign Affairs. And in 2016, the theme of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting at Davos um, was mastering the fourth industrial revolution. But soon after that, I think it was the following year, just before 2016's annual World Economic Forum meeting of the Global Future Council, uh, Ida Aachen, he's a Danish um, um, MP, and he's also a young global leader and a member of the Council of S- Cities and Urbanization. He uploaded a blog post that was later published by Forbes, imagining how technology could improve our lives by 2030. Anyway, you, you see these young global leaders, they, they, they latch on, or maybe they're asked to kind of promote these ideas that the, the leading member of the World Economic Forum proposes. So it looks like these ideas are coming out organically, but but they're not. You know, they're all coming out of the same thing. And and you wouldn't know that unless you did research on these people. Um, anyway, I think I'm just going to pretty much wrap up there. Uh, you mind if I say something? Yeah, go for it. So 
yeah, what I hear you saying is these young global leaders are kind of like the marketing team for this uh, globalist organization, right? They're just like, hey, guys, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? I just thought of this idea. Wow. And then everyone's like, oh, you know, those people are thinking the same things. And Jason's basically saying, yeah, well, they're all thinking the same things and saying the same things because they're all members of the same club, yeah. right? But uh, um, I had a scripture I wanted to read. If it, I don't want to steal your thunder. Yeah, just thinking of um, just a global uh, government. You know, nobody likes that idea. Um, we like we like our nation. We like our sovereignty. Right? Maybe not nobody, but um, and it has been kind of this thrust of humanity to as a way of rebelling against the Lord. But the Bible does speak of a global government that's coming in the future. That in, in just like I think Chris alluded to this, maybe Jason too, will replace the humanist world government, right, that's led, led by Satan, It's and that's the government of Jesus Christ. And I'll just read a quick scripture out of Daniel chapter 7. I was just thinking about this as Jason was going on. So if you want to turn with me in your Bible to Daniel chapter 7, and just going to read a couple of verses here, not too many. Just to put a capstone and, and remind us, yeah, we see this, we see these tight parallels in this current of, uh, of, uh, this organization, all these people that are well connected and powerful trying to drive their agenda and, you know, backdoor their agenda and all these things. And, and I, I just want to, I thought it'd be good to, to read this, uh, word of encouragement, um, that, that whatever they do, the Lord's will is going to prevail. And whatever they do, the Lord's government's going to prevail. So, This is uh, Daniel 7, starting in verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so that's what we're looking forward to. Um, so <laughs> I'll, I'll hand this back. You're next. I'm next. I'm, I'm going to cut you off for one second. And the only reason is because I actually got a question. I'm really happy about that. Um, by the way, you guys can text in your questions uh, through the, the text number. I think uh, my son threw that up on the live feed. You can also just comment in the comment section, and he'll text that to me. And if you're super special and have my phone number, I, I get texts from people too. But anyways, I want to try to answer this. It's it's kind of a rabbit trail of its own, so I'm not going to turn it into that. I'm going to answer it because it has to do with this idea of a totalian, total, how do you say it? Totalitarian. Yes, totalitarian government. Okay, that's a big word. I'm probably not going to use it again tonight. But for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a system of government in which the people have virtually no authority and the state wields absolute control, like basically a dictatorship, okay? And so the question is, what should our response be to trends towards in the slow creep of that style of government? And I think it's kind of probably in direct response to some of the things kind of going on in our own country, which... It's not an easy question. I mean, it is an easy, it's an, there is an easy answer in the Bible. The Bible is very clear on what we're to do with authority. It says in Romans 13, I'm going to read this, what the Bible says. And keep in mind that the government that Paul was under when he was writing this was not a good government. Okay, it was a Roman government, 
where you could be killed very easily and burned alive for being a Christian, okay? But he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. For those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Um, and then Peter also says something along this lines where he says, um, be subject for the Lord's sake, this, uh, first, first Peter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So the Bible is pretty clear, and there's no exception there regarding like it being a certain style of government on whether we're to obey the authorities that God has allowed to be placed over us. Um, now, the caveat to that is... So as long as God's still the ultimate authority. So if you're being told to do something that's directly in conflict with God's word, you are not to obey. You obey God over man. You know, there's still a level or a, a, a hierarchy of authority with God being the ultimate authority in his word. And then the, the authorities around you. Now, where I think the, the question is coming from, where there, I was just talking to a brother about this before church. There's a tension in our country. Because the question is, are the things we're being asked to do uh, constitutionally allowed? Like as Americans, do we should not have to be told to do these things. You know, we have our freedoms. And so um, it's a valid argument in some cases. And it's proven to be a valid argument in many cases now as these things are being challenged in court and people are being found. Yes, the government does not have the right to tell you to do this. So that's where that tension lies. And it comes down to, you know, you have the right as a citizen to stand up for your rights but um that's kind of something you have to work out with the lord individually and and it completely depends on what you're talking about you know and some people throw in the card there well paul he stood up for his rights you know he was going to get beaten he said i'm a roman citizen in the book of acts and 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 it saved him from being beaten and yes that that is an example that's in there but here's where I think people go wrong because they tie that to their Christianity. But nowhere in there did he say, well, well, because I'm a Christian, you can't do this. He didn't say that. He said, he, you know, I have rights as a citizen and they recognize those rights. And so, you know, again, this is a, a thing that you have to kind of work out on your own. If, if that's something that you truly feel you have as rights as a citizen, it's separate from your, your basically your Christianity and what God tells us to do under his, his um, in his word. And I'm going to throw even a third thing that makes it even more complicated this Sunday. Because whereas you may have the liberty to do that, should you do that? Because does it compromise your testimony if you do do that? But we're going to save that for Sunday. So whoever asked that question, you can tune in on Sunday and we'll, we'll go down a whole nother rabbit hole with that. So anyways, I'm going to turn it over to Josh. How much time do I have? Go, go for it. Okay. Um, so when Chris asked us to to do this i i was the first one that threw something out um 
because this has been something that I've been just rolling over for quite a while now. And Marcus would probably agree with that. The one world religion. Um, the one world religion is starting to come together, I believe. Uh, Satan is a great counterfeiter. Everything that God does, Satan duplicates and twists. Um, we are starting to see the church lay down all doctrine to find common ground to solve the world problems. They do this by completely removing the truth of the gospel. And they add in all kinds of stuff that you cannot find in God's word. Second Thessalonians 2.3 says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Here the Bible is talking about uh, a rebellion or an apostasy that is to come. The great apostasy that, that will happen before the rapture of the church. And uh, then the man of sin will be revealed. Here we, um, have we ever really stopped to think what um, that would be like? What, what does that look like? Second uh, Timothy 3, 5 tells us that the people in the last days will have a form of godliness, but they will deny its power. Are we starting to see this happen in the church currently? I really believe that um, is what we are starting to see right now. Tonight we're talking about the rise of the one world government uh, and world religion that is spoken of in Daniel and Revelation. In Revelation 13, we see two beasts. The first beast is the Antichrist. I think what we are seeing um, is the political system that the beast will possibly year, uh, use within the one world economic forum. Um, it is the one thing that has risen to the top. So there's always been some kind of uh, one world secret society type group people through history. You can go through history and, and find them in history. Um, currently, this is the one that has risen to the top. And it's the one that is actually um, controlling everything that's going on. The reason that the whole world is wearing masks and, and quarantine is because of this group of people. That's why everybody is thinking with the same mind. Um, in fact, God will tell, God, God tells us that he's going to give the ten kings all the same mind um, in, in, in Revelation. So I think they're on, I think they're around and I think they're, they're being used right now. Um, the system will be up and running before the Antichrist will be revealed. In fact, the ten kings will end up giving their power to the beast in Revelation seventeen thirteen. So the ten kings are going to be on, on the scene. And uh, before the Antichrist shows up, the, the system's going to be set up. And the Antichrist is just going to flip the switch and turn it on. Um, the second beast, the false prophet, is the one that I want to talk to you guys about tonight, or more of what uh, his religious system will look like. And I, I see and see if we can possibly see it in today. Um, now, we can't name who either of these beasts are. Uh, people have been trying to name the beast for the last 2,000 years. As to who these two figures are, they have always been wrong. The Bible tells us that the first beast will not be revealed until the one who restrains is taken out of the way. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.6, we believe this is the Holy Spirit of God living within the saved individual. And when, when there's a Holy Spirit vacuum in the world as far as us being salt and light, that's when the Antichrist will be able to uh, come on the scene. However, through church history, the office of the Pope has always been pointed to as the seat, uh, the possible seat of the false prophet. So let's take a look at a few of these stories and see what I found. First off, Pope Francis. Uh, first, uh, Catholics' eyebrows are even raising about what he's doing. 
Um, in fact, I was listening to a Catholic the other day, Dan Bongino. I don't know if any of you guys listened to him. And he's like, this guy's a Marxist. This is our church, you know, and we need to get him out. So even Catholics are looking at it going, this guy, there's something not right with this guy. Uh, this is the first Jesuit Catholic, and he's a Marxist. Now, if you guys don't know what that is, it's worth looking into. Um, I can't get into their history of the group right now, but uh, check them out. Uh, neither one is friendly to Christians. Um, this uh, first story here I've got connects the Pope to the World Economic Forum. Pope Francis hops on board uh, the chilling globalist Great Reset, WEF wagon. So Pope Francis, in remarks in the Apostolic Palace, said that coronavirus has provided the perfect opportunity for economies of the world to reimagine markets and push businesses to put social justice uh, rather than profits at the core of their pursuits. In layman's terms, he is calling for an end of capitalism and a worldwide implementation of socialism. He just picked up the World Economic Forum Socialist Collectiveness Great Reset Playbook and moved it a little bit further down the road. Um, there is one need for one that brings life, not death, one that is inclusive and not exclusive, humane and not dehumanizing, one that cares for the environment and does not despoil it. This next this next thing that we're going to start seeing, I, I believe, is uh, lockdowns because of the environment. Um, I don't even have that in my notes, but I, I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, the thing is, capitalism already provides an economic system that serves both men and women. Capitalism already provides opportunities that lift its adherence from death to life. Jesus Christ is the only thing that saves us, and it's by his death and life and resurrection. The second story I have here is Pope Francis says, Don't be afraid that God has allowed different religions in the world. No one should be afraid that God has allowed there to be different religions in the world. But we should be frightened if we're not doing the work of the fraternity or walking together in life. As brothers and sisters of one human family, he said. Catholics and Muslims are both descendants of the same father, Abraham, he said. And the trip um, and the trip was another step in the journey of dialogue and encounter with our Muslim brothers and sisters. This was in, I believe, Morocco. Pope Francis said that people also may uh, wonder why God allows there to be so many different religions in the world. Uh, some theologians say it's part of God's permissive will, allowing this reality of many religions. Some emerge from the cultures, but they always look toward heaven and God. Um, actually, the last comment I have, um, Paul writes in Galatians, there is neither Jew or Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, our unity is in Christ, not in who we are descended from. So that was the first point of that. The second one, the second piece that I just read was, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's, it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 
2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15 says, Jesus said in, um, that was 2 Corinthians 11 through 13. Jesus said in John 14, 6, that uh, he was the way, the truth and the light, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. If the Pope is saying things contrary to Jesus, who's right? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Pope urges all religions to unite for peace and justice. Um, Pope Francis urges members of all religions and those belonging to the church uh, on Wednesday to unite to defend justice and peace and the environment. There's the word again, environment, and not allow the value of a person to be reduced what he, uh, to what he produces and consumes. Francis elected a week ago as the first non-European pope in 1,300 years, met leaders of uh, non-Catholic Christian religious, uh, such as Orthodox, Englands, Luther, Lutherans, Methodists, and others, including Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus. Um, I grabbed this story because of the Jewish connection. This one world uh, religion will include everyone except those that have accepted Christ as their Lord and personal Savior. Those who uh, repent from their sins and look to Jesus as the only person that can save them. What they're trying to do is do what uh, God did for us on the cross. And they're trying to duplicate it within their own power. Uh, Francis' biggest reform is to shift church from Eurocentric to universal. Pope is looking to establish a universal church. The only way that happens is if you lay aside doctrine, which he doesn't, he doesn't even know his doctrine. Um, number five, this is the groundwork for the one world religion. I've got an article here, the Abrahamic house. Have you guys heard of the Abrahamic house in Dubai? So, it's a cultural landmark in the UAE, which includes a synagogue, a church, and a mosque. It's meant to be a beacon of understanding and peaceful coexistence inspired by the uh, document of humane fraternity. If we start looking into some of these organizations, it gets really interesting who they're tied to because they're all intertied. They're connected together. Um, the project is closely followed by, the Pope, by Pope Francis and the Grand Imam Ahmed El Taib of Al Azir, who endorsed the design. Um, HCHF said the Abrahamic house uh, derives its name from the Old Testament biblical figure Abraham, who is recognized and greatly revered by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Um, besides the three uh, places of worship, the site includes a cultural center that aims to encourage people to exemplify human fraternity, solidarity within the community that cherishes the values of mutual respect. Now this. This, they've got one going into Washington DC. They also have one going into New York. Um, Germany has one called the House of One. And I saw a, and I couldn't find it, but I saw a rabbi talking about the possibility of building one on the Temple Mount. So isn't that interesting? Um, so, yep, there's that. So my next thing is I'm going to talk about Rick Warren. Um, there's a lot of pastors that have started being exposed as what Jesus calls hirelings in the past two years. Uh, John 10, 12, 13 says, he who is hired, uh, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is hi a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
Um, here, this is a capstone report. Rick Warren promoted uh, churches to fight a pandemic. Uh, excuse me. Rick Warren promoted churches to fight a pandemic at the World Economic Forum in 2008. Hmm. Did, did you guys see that article last week, how the, the government used the church as propaganda, their propaganda tool? Southern Baptist pastor Rick Warren told globalists at the World Economic Forum how to use the church as a partner during the pandemic or similar emergencies. Warren promoted the use of free church volunteers as a universal distribution system while at the 2008 WEF event in Davos, Switzerland. Warren promoted that the church as a one-legged of a three-legged partnership between government, business, and religion. This highlights... Uh, the, this highlights a recent Daily Wire report showing a link between churches spreading government propaganda during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. This was just February 2nd, uh, 2002. Here are some of the quotes from um, Rick Warren. We Actually, I sent this video to Marcus. I was going to have it played, but it, it, I can just read it. Um, houses of worship have things that businesses and governments will never have. In the first place, we have universal distribution. The church was global 200 years before Davos started talking about globalization. Um, we have hundreds of millions of people who volunteer around the world in villages and cities on a weekly basis, and we don't even have to pay them. The third thing that they have is that they have local credibility. Local credibility. So this guy is selling out Christ for what? Um, at the local level, people trust that priests and, and that pastors, or for that matter, any mom or a rabbi, the religious leader of their faith, because he's marrying, he's bearing, he's helping them through the stages of life. When the crisis comes, NGOs come and go, nations come and go. But for instance, the church has a 2,000-year track record. So in this article, it asks two questions. What are governments and the WEF going to do with all those volunteers? And what churches are going to use their 2,000-year track record uh, of earned authority to distribute? What are they going to sell? You know, this man is selling out the flock to the World Economic Forum. Rick Warren to Muslims, the God of the Bible and Allah are the same. Chrislam founder Rick Warren partnering with mosques to teach Muslims that God of the Bible and Allah are the same. The Reverend Rick Warren, pastors of Saddleback Church. Now, the point of this is Rick Warren's just the tip of the iceberg. This goes, it, it spreads out in all directions right now. We're watching it happen on a level that we've never seen before. Um, American Muslims on Saturday that the two largest faiths on the planet must work together to combat stereotypes and solve global problems. It all sounds good. Um, theologians' principles that includes acknowledging that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Now, I, yeah, I don't think so. This here connects um, the evangelical church to the same agenda as the Pope, um, at least Rick Warren's church. Uh, this is all that, uh, the spirit of the Antichrist as war, as a warning. This doesn't end here. It's, it's everywhere. And when I say everywhere, it's everywhere. Um, this is why it's so important to be reading your Bibles. Know your Bible. Satan dis, uh, deceived Eve with the truth. Did you guys know that? She, he told her the truth and totally deceived her. Uh, twisted truth, but truth nonetheless. Satan can make it look as if it's from God and deceive. Uh, read your Bibles. 
Uh, lastly, there's one thing that I want to talk about, and I was back and forth on this because I know how many people love the TV show The Chosen. Now, if you're watching the TV show, I'm not telling you you can't watch it, but what I'm telling you is watch it with discernment because I'm going to show you a couple things here really quick with what The Chosen is doing. Um, I think it's a perfect example of how Satan deceives um, the show is produced by Mormons, directed by a Protestant, and contributed by Catholics and Jews. Uh, we, we see a, a group of people coming together. Now, if this group of people is coming together to talk about Jesus Christ, and we can't agree on what Christ did for us on the cross, why are we listening to him, first off? One of the, I'm, I'm gonna, one of the episodes, uh, there's a Sermon on the Mount preparation. And Jesus is out in the field prepping the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, Okay. Jesus is prepping and having a hard time coming up with the right words. He's using the word salt. And then Matthew says, well, if you use it this way, it's going to bring out this idea. And if you use it this way, and they're struggling to come up with the thing. Um, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in this. Okay. Uh, this was in my, and this is why I'm saying this today is uh, yesterday in my devos, I was in Mark and this verse um really popped out at me. Mark 6, 2 tells us that on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And so does, does that sound like somebody that needs help with sermon prep? Okay. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John uh, 1, 14, uh, John 12, 49 through 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Again, doesn't need, this is only one example in the show. I've got dozens of examples. I watched three episodes and then I turned it off. That was when it first came out and then it's reemerged again. So I went back and did more research and there's a ton of stuff. Um, what this does is it compromises who Christ is. It diminishes his deity. We have to remember that Christ was fully God and fully man. This is a scene where, there's another scene where John the Baptist and Jesus are arguing. And Jesus tells John that it's too dangerous for him to confront Herod. And John says, it's in the Torah and the man should not have his brother's wife. Then John tells, his, tells Jesus, it'll be great. My disciples will love it. Um, in John 3, 30 through 36, John the Baptist said, John the Baptist, the one that's arguing with Jesus right now said, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven um, is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. However, whoever, excuse me, receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, uh, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son 
and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, you got the Holy Spirit arguing with the Holy Spirit because you remember that uh, from the womb, John was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Um, like I said, there's, there's a ton of examples in here, but what the chosen does, it brings Jesus down, uh, to the level of man. And he, it makes Jesus somebody that, um, we could pal around with in a sense. Um, numerous different things in the show as far as, uh, they, they're very comfortable in their sin. They're, they're not ashamed of their sin and Jesus loves them anyways. And in, in some cases that's, that's true. But God calls us to repent from our sin. God calls us out of our sin. We're not to remain in our sin. He's calling us into a different life. Uh, Matthew 7, 23 says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And they will uh, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We can have a, we can look Christian, we can do talk Christianese, we can do all the right things, we can prophesy, we can cast out demons, but in the end, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's pointless. Um, to sum all this up, the one world religion of the Antichrist looks very Christian. The only way that we will not be deceived is by reading our Bibles, knowing what the Word of God says, and the Word of God is the only authority if, uh, it's absolutely the only authority. If your church is doing something not found in the Bible, it's not the truth. If there's things being practiced in your truth that you can't go, this is from my Bible, this is, this is where we get this, it's not the truth. Jesus spoke to us through His Son in these last days, and the Word of God right here is it. Amen? Anything to add? Do you guys have anything? No, go, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so mine, mine's kind of a sub-point on what Josh was saying. Um, but uh, as Josh was reading, I thought of this. So I thought of this scripture in Zechariah. Um, let's see, here's what it says. This is Zechariah. I think it's... Am I in the wrong... Hold on. Give me, give me a sec here. Oh, here. It's Zechariah 8, 23. <laughs> there is, it's in Zechariah chapter eight. I won't quote it because I'm actually I'm I'm off by a verse. But basically, in the last days, when Jesus rules and reigns on earth, there will be one world religion. But the person who's being worshipped will be Jesus in spirit and truth, right? Because this this one world religion that that man is going to attempt to institute is also going to be done away with. So that's that's a comfort I have, and I wholeheartedly agree with Josh and what he said. Read your Bible. Um, so my, my point is that the thing that I was going to talk about today was, um, the mark of the beast. And I'll just read one scripture out of, um, Revelation 13 to kind of set it off. So as a part of the false one world religion, something is coming called the mark of the beast. And a lot of, there's a lot of fear and anxiety about it. Um, I guess what I was going to see is we're going to read the scripture and we're going to say, are there any trends that we can see? Just like these guys have brought up trends in government, trends in religion. Are there any trends or parallels that 
you know, it may not be the thing, but that track with it. Is there is there a correlation? You know, is, are there similarities between things that we're seeing in the world right now and this something that could be used or potentially in the future changed to 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 be used in that way? So here we go. As a part of this one world religion, here's what happens. This is about the second beast. This comes out of Revelation 13, and it says, um, let's see. Okay, it says. Uh, sorry, Revelation 13, starting in verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And so, in order, as, a, as this one world religion develops and as um, it seizes power on earth, there's going to be this mark that shows up, um, right? The mark of the beast that's given to identify and distinguish those who will worship the beast, right? Because the alternative you just read was being slain, right? So... Um, allowing them to escape death, and then they're allowed to buy and sell, so they can they can participate in society. They can meet their most basic needs. You know, they can buy food or whatever. And uh, so, just kind of looking at at this um, this mark, and this has come up several times, but this is a, another counterfeit of of things that the Lord wants to do. The Lord actually. In Ezekiel 9-4, um, before God was going to judge the southern kingdom of Judah, he sent an angel into the city to put a mark on, on the foreheads of the people that were groaning and uh, sighing over the abominations that would be committed in the temple, right? The, the idolatry that was taking place. And, and those people would be spared from judgment. And so um, you have this sort of counterfeit mark our identification method um, that is being used to to destroy the people that won't go along with the Antichrist one world religion. And so um, I guess my question was like, well, is there anything that we can look at that's happening that would allow um, that would allow people to be universally or, or globally identified and then also prevent them from buying or selling? Is there anything that is even going in that direction. And, and it turns out there is. Um, um, do you guys want to show the first slide? I only have two, so hopefully. So well, if it doesn't come up. Um, oh, okay, great. So um, the World Economic Forum has like a white paper. It's kind of like um, Jason talked about white papers. They have these documents they publish that are like a vision for what they want to see or what they think should happen. And one of the things out of their advanced, advancing digital agency, the power of data, um, what does it even say, the power of data intermediaries, their insight report, is this idea of a, a digital identity. And it may be a little bit, difficult to see in the house, but there's all these different aspects of it. One is healthcare, right? One is um, financial services to open uh, bank accounts or um, online financial transactions, right? So does that, does that sound like it's, it's a global way of identifying you that would allow you to access the basic functions of society. And so 
Um, it's just, it's a white paper, and I thought, okay, well, anybody can write a thing about what they want to see happen or something they think would be good, but is this, like, are there any, like, real practical, is, is this is this just an idea that somebody has, or is does this thing have any teeth, or is there anybody trying to develop it? So I'm going to show you a short clip. We won't play it all. A short video clip of a guy named... Neil Parmenter, he's the CEO of the Association of Bankers in Canada, and he's kind of trying to make this pitch to, I guess, the Canadian government that we need a digital ID for Canada, and it'll have all these benefits. So we're just going to play a little bit of that clip, um, and I'll tell the guys in the back when to when to cut it off. Canada is on the cusp of a revolutionary innovation oh, you that will turn transform on the, the way uh... Canadians authenticate themselves online and protect their identity digital ID. All of us are living in a digital world, but we're tethered to an analog model of how we identify ourselves. Memorizing countless online passwords, carrying government-issued licenses, plastic cards, and more. Digital ID is a way for Canadians to identify themselves to government, businesses, and each other electronically with ease and rock-solid security, without the need to present physical documents. One interconnected network. A federated digital ID ecosystem developed in collaboration with Canada's best and brightest talent from our banks, telecommunication companies, law enforcement, and government. It would have the power and security to store every Canadian's electronic identity and attributes. And it would unlock countless opportunities for Canadians to verify who they are safely, quickly, and securely, while only revealing the information necessary for each transaction. A fast, easy, and secure way to bank, Sign up for government services, renew driver's licenses or health cards, shop, travel, and more. Canada's banks are perfectly situated to help lead the creation of a federated digital ID system between government and the private sector. The World Economic Forum agrees that banks and financial institutions should lead the path forward for digital ID. Banks are highly regulated and trusted. They have advanced cybersecurity yeah, and privacy technology. And they have the infrastructure to... So he just kind of yammers on a little bit about that. But, I mean, you can see that, in fact, it's, it's not just a, a paper. There's actually some, um, there's a, there's a push to implement something that would connect government, uh, financial institutions, health cards, right? We can already see that little, that little model coming together. So is this the mark of the beast? Well, no, it's not. Um, it's not because there is no, there is no beast to worship, right? Uh, but you can see how something like that could easily be shimmed into that. And there's not the spiritual component, right? If you read that, if you refer back to that section of Revelation 13, it talked about people who wouldn't worship the beast, um, they would be killed. And the people that would got the mark, right? They were allowed to participate. So is it the mark of the beast? No, it's not. But we can see tight correlation. We can see the direction that things are going. And... Um, um, Something connected to that, which I'll just touch on super briefly, is the idea of a digital currency. And uh, one th- one thing that that is connected to that is making money digital. So there's no more paper dollars. But the idea behind a digital currency is it be programmable. Um, I think Jason sent me a really good quote on that. Um, so there's a guy that was on Rogan, and he was basically sounding the alarm. Digital currencies are coming. They want to do this. And... Here's a quote from something he said. He said, digital cash could be programmed to ensure it's only spent on essentials or goods which an employer or government deems to be sensible. So the idea is that you would have money, but they would control how you would spend it. 
And so in, that really takes the whole idea of buying and selling and controlling buying and selling to the next level, right? Kind of scary. Um, but where's this spiritual application here? Be- Exactly right. Yeah, so uh, what Chris just said is, uh, I think your mic was off, but yeah, it mentions that the mark of the beast will will be required for you to be able to buy and sell, period. So what, what do we do? I mean, we see parallels. Um, how do we relate to this idea of um, of a digital ID or a global a global ID? Like, what do we what do we carry home um, from as far as spiritually goes? Because um, I just said it, was, it isn't the mark of the beast, but it certainly looks like it's going in the right direction. And we might be like, whoa, I'm, I'm freaked out. What do I do about this? Um, well, there's not anything you can do about it. <laughs> God's word is going to come to pass. Jesus was explicit. He said that not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law till all is accomplished. And that includes the law and the prophets, right? It's going to happen. Um, but what I want to leave... What I want to what I want to leave the Christians in the room is is hope. Even though the world has one, um, they, they have an agenda and they have an identity that they want to press you into. Right? If you look at Daniel and his friends, and they got taken from Judah, they all had God glorifying names. And then we got the Babylon, they got renamed with all these pagan names. That is that has always been the world's agenda is to take our identity and who we are, who God made us to be, and to distort that and change that and, and make us useful and to the enemy. But but God has a unique and wonderful identity for us. God has an amazing plan for us. I'm just going to read to you a verse from Second Corinthians one. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees us everything he has promised us. And um, NL, Amen. The NLT says that he identifies us as his own, right? So our identity, Christians, is in Christ. That's what we hope in. That's the direction of our, our lives need to go. That needs to be our concern, that needs to be where our hearts and minds are are focused. He identifies us as his own when we place our faith in. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And, and so what is our life supposed to look like? What's, a, what's, a, what's the, the Christian who is identified in Christ supposed to look like? There's many, many verses in the Bible we can turn to. Um, but um, here's here's what Galatians two twenty says: I have been crucified with Christ. I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So I live my life in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so, regardless of um, whatever the world tries to do with a digital identity or you know uh, CBDCs, and I, I don't mean to be dismissive. I think they're bad, but the hope that I have in Christ and the identity that I have in Christ transcends these things and is awesome. And, and, and the things the world offers, they're not worthy to be compared with what I have in Jesus and what you have in Jesus. So I want to leave you guys with that hope and, and just a question. You know, are you finding your identity in Christ on a day-to-day basis? Man, I know as a kid you wake up and you're like, all right, you know, what am I going to do today? You know, maybe maybe good, and I do this sometimes, so I don't want to put myself on a pedestal, but sometimes I don't. 
do you ask yourself, what does the Lord have for me today? My identity is in Jesus. What does the Lord have for me today? And that's what I just encourage you guys to think, think in that direction. The world's going one direction. We're going another direction, following Jesus. What does the Lord have for me today, and how can I serve him? How can I find my identity in the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. There's one last question I got that I want to answer here briefly um, before we wrap up. And um, it was, the person was asking, how would you suggest gracefully handling family and friends that are either non-believers or on the fence that only get their information and news on Facebook and social media rather than the word is what I'm assuming. Basically, like it says here that they they wholeheartedly are believing all the wrong people, the false prophets that are kind of spewing um, divisive things or division or immorality. They're believing the wrong things basically off social media. I, I would say, I mean, and you guys can comment on this too. It kind of goes along with what you're seeing, you were saying. I mean, like Joss's point wasn't like you're a bad person if you watch the chosen. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you're seeing this integration, this pollution of the truth of God's word in like everything nowadays. It's just getting worse and worse. And and, and this misrepresentation of God, this misrepresentation of Jesus um, by people claiming, though, that it's representing the right Jesus or the right God. It's not. And you wouldn't know that unless you knew God's word and you'd be able to see these things that are incorrect, you know, and, and, and it's important more than ever to do that. And so my response to that is, yeah, there's a whole lot of bad stuff out there right now, and, and we have ample ways to access it. So you have to be very careful on who you're listening to and, and not just taking what they're saying is truth, but holding it up to the truth. You know, like you've heard me use that analogy before, like when they're training people to spot counterfeits, they don't teach them what the counterfeit looks like. They teach them what a real $100 bill looks like because the best thing to do is know what the real thing looks like and then you'll be able to spot out the fake. And so we're, we're not trying to look for the counterfeits. We're, we're, we're knowing the truth, the real thing, which is God's word. And that will help us see the things that are false. And so for anyone that's believing false things, I'm always going to give them the same thing and that's the truth of God's word. That's going to be my response. When Satan tried to deceive Jesus, how do you respond? With the truth of God's word. I think of that verse in John 17, 17, where Jesus says, sanctify him by the truth. Yes. Your word is truth. All right? That's what cleanses people. And so I'm going to give them truth. And whether they want to believe it is truth or not, that's on them. You know, that's, you know, I've said before, I God doesn't need me to prove it to them. It's truth whether they believe it or not. But... God's word doesn't return void. I believe that. And I believe that it it reveals the, the deceptions of the enemy. So if somebody's believing something and they're telling me that it's something that I know is completely wrong according God's word, I'm going to go to God's word and say, well, actually, this is what God says about that. This is what God's given us his word so we don't have to wonder about these things and we can know, um, you know, the false things, which are many of them out there in the world, and what's true. And, and this is what it says about that thing. And I'm always going to give them that. I mean, that's just, you know, I'm hoping I'm not making this sound too simple, but that's always going to be my response. I'm just going to go back to the, the authority of God's word and, and give that to them so at least they hear it 
and then pray that they receive it and believe it for what it is. So, Can I add? Yeah. Okay. Uh, first off, um, back to The Chosen really quick. Uh, Dallas Jenkins, uh, the producer for The Cho- Chosen, says he wants to bring you the authentic Jesus. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is 90% of what's in that show is not in the Word of God. So how is that the authentic Jesus? He's making up storylines here and there all over the place. Um, I want to add to Chris's comment. Um, about that, how how do you how, how do you deal with that? And the, sometimes you can't talk to them. Sometimes you can't give them the word. They don't want to hear it. So the best way to deal with that is to pray, pray, pray. And I will tell you a story. We prayed for my aunt for forty years. Forty years we prayed for for my aunt to come to know Christ. And um, and I think it was in twenty. 20, it had to be 2016. Was it 2016? 2016, she comes to know the Lord as, as, as her Lord and personal Savior. And in 2017, she went to Israel with me. And I got to baptize her in the Jordan River. Yeah. So pray. That is, that's the key to break down the walls that are before you with your friends and family. You can't, there, there's nothing you can do or say sometimes to break down those walls. The only thing that can break those down those walls is Jesus Christ. That's right. So that's all I got. Amen. And one thing I just want to end on that I try to remind us often is the 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 right way and the wrong way to react to Bible prophecy. And again, one thing that we don't want to do. And this, be, I remember when we first started these, and there was a, a somebody's son, a child that was in here, and I was having a conversation with her parent, and they got kind of freaked out by the stuff we were talking about. And I was like, oh man. I'm like, that's exactly what Jesus says not to do. So I got to remind people, like, that's the one thing, like he says in Matthew 24, 6, like, don't panic or, or don't, don't be alarmed when you start seeing these things happen. That's, that's not what we do as Christians. That's not the point of Bible prophecy. The point of Bible prophecy is that we know enough of what's going to happen that when we see these things happen, we're like, oh yeah, the Lord said that this was going to happen. I see things going in the direction that he said. So again, it's that confident hope in the fact that things are going the way they're supposed to. This 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 world is falling away just like it was supposed to. I'm not a part of this world. I'm a part of God's kingdom and I'm just trying to take as many people as I can with it. And that return to Jesus is coming soon, you know? And he tells us that that verse I've kind of been reiterating from the very beginning, uh, Luke 21:28. So when all these things begin to happen, as he's kind of sharing these things that are going to lead to his return, he says, so when these things begin to happen, stand and look up for your salvation is near. There's two things he says to do there. He says, get all freaked out, go move out into the woods and buy a bunch of guns. No, he doesn't say that, right? He says, stand up, you know, make sure that you're, you're like, you're alert. You're like, there's a sense of urgency in knowing that he's coming back. Like, am I living the way I'm supposed to? Am I living for the Lord? You know, like, or am I still just kind of, you know, clinging to things of the world that, that's so quickly going away? It's, it's like, check your, your relationship with the Lord. Be aware where you're at with him. And then look up. Keep your focus on him. Don't be distracted by those things. Don't be freaked out on the things happening around you. Like, they're happening just as they're supposed to. Your mission's the same. Keep your focus on Jesus right up into the point that he comes to get you. You go to be with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you guys. Thank you for coming tonight.
Um, if you guys have any follow-up questions, get them to us, and we'll do our best to answer them. And then uh, we'll see you guys next month. God bless you.